Thanks for listening to the Sunday Teaching Podcast from Salt and Light, a community based in Fort Worth, Texas, making disciples of Jesus together by seeking His kingdom in everyday life. Find out more at saltandlightfw.com. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satarps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satarps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews who you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you've set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I have made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what good will you be able to, then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the god we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He offered the furnace, he ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual, and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement 
and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that were tied up that we threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. All right. Um, one of the things that Marvin Gaye said that he learned from probably a well-meaning lady was that there are three things you're not supposed to talk about. And remember what they are? Religion, politics, finances. We're going to set finances aside for the day, but guess what we're going to talk about today? The intersection of religion and politics. So if you want to leave, now's your chance. Other than that, we're going to be in the first few chapters of the book of Daniel. And we're just going to dive right in because there's a lot here. Uh, Obviously, it's a huge topic for this year. It's a huge topic for always, but it feels more pressing uh, every day, every week, this, this current year that we find ourselves in. So diving right in, fun question. Feel free to answer back to me. What do you think of when you hear the term politics. Let's remember there's some kids in the room, but what do you think of when you hear the term politics? People shouting till they're red in the face. Conflict. Conflict. Red versus blue. blue. Lies. Lies. And then probably a whole lot of things that we would say if there weren't kids in the room as well. Um, What about government? What do you think when you hear the term government? Oppression. Oppression. The president. The president. Yeah. Anything else? Ineffective. Ineffective, okay. Uh, anyone go like, oh, I kind of think of the same things when I think of those two words, politics and government. They're, they're two things that become very, very intertwined. They're unavoidable topics today, obviously. Uh, they're confusing. They're hard to navigate for anyone, but especially as followers of Jesus. And, and so again, like if this is your first time with us for a few weeks, we're, we're walking through the Bible and just seeing how many of God's people existed in exile. And again, if that's a foreign term, a term we don't think about a lot, uh, they live in a land that's not theirs. They're they're removed from their home. They live in a world that they don't fully fit. That's, That's the imagery of exile. And every week, we're seeing different biblical examples of that life and asking the questions, how do we engage well? How do we live well in this land, but how do we live differently in this land? How do we engage as people of God in an ungodly world? What does worship look like? What does blessing others look like? Where where do we engage? Where do we not? And that brings us to today. Um, And if I'm honest, I've I've wrestled a little bit. Is this this a conversation about politics in exile or government in exile? Um, Because on on some level, again, those, those two words are used utterly interchangeably, but we need to define them because they're not the same thing. And it can be really a helpful first step in this whole conversation to, to break the two apart and see them for what they truly are. So, so government, by, by definition, by common definition, this is a global definition, is the method of rule within a people group. Okay? Every people group has some sort of governance. Your house has a governance. There's a, there's a way that people are ruled, a, a culture uh, of, of authority in one's household, in one's job, in broader people groups and nations and states and, and this kind of stuff. There are every, every people group has some sort of rule. So government in and of itself as a construct is neutral. Now we don't think about it as neutral, but as a construct, it's just the way that 
that people are led, that people are ruled. As a construct, it is, it is neutral. Politics, on the other hand, we don't think of in its actual definition. Because by definition, politics are how people make decisions as a group. Is that what you think of when you think of the word politics? It's not at all what I think of when I think of the word politics. But politics, again, is a neutral thing. It's a question of how people make decisions. Um, is it that, that decisions are handed down? Does everybody have a part to play in a decision? Again, think of boardrooms. We don't have to just think about politics in our governmental stance. Like There's, there's politics all around us. People make decisions all around us. But the way we most of the time think about politics is something like this. It's backbiting and manipulation and posturing to try to get ahead, to try to get your way or your groups. That's, that's what I think of, at least, when I think of politics. This anyone else? And so this whole conversation is utterly, like we don't even have the right starting point for this conversation because these words are so interchanged. These words are so misunderstood. And, and, and here's what I want to say is that that version that exists all around us, that version, that vision of politics, that is not neutral. That is negative. And again, it's not just tied to government. Like there's office politics. Anyone hear that? There's school politics and people try to get ahead in, in all kind of realms and concentric circles and levels of, of life. People play favorites and manipulate and use each other. Yes, that's common in government. It's common in life. And, and so politics and government are, are used interchangeably. And, and, and so that's kind of the first challenge. So if we want to think about this conversation we're going to have today, it's a little bit like, like peeling an orange. Like we want to get to the meat of it, but, but we got to take off this peel and understand what it is we're even talking about. Um, and if we don't have a fair definition of politics that's separate than government, then, then we're not even going to be able to get to like the actual meat, the heart of the conversation. And so it's important for us, just as, as we start, as we lay the foundation to kind of remove this peel and go, okay, let's, let's, know, what we're, let's know what we're having a conversation about. Are we talking about politics? Or are we talking about government? This kind of politics, the backbiting, manipulating, posturing, that kind of stuff, no matter what realm of life, church, no matter where it is, public stage, private stage, national, local government, office, school, home, that is never the heart of God. Is that fair? Backbiting, manipulating, out of integrity, this kind of stuff, it's ne never the heart of God. And so if we can start there and put politics aside as we commonly think about it, then we can kind of set the peel aside and get to the meat of the, of the orange, the meat of the conversation. Cool? I told you we were going to dive right in. So, so that's, that's where we start. We've got to, got to kind of understand what it is that we're talking about and then get into the depth and meat of our conversation. So if we can put that aside, if we can put the peel aside, then we have the right question in front of us, the right conversation of saying, what does it look like to engage government? What does it look like to engage leaders? What does it look like to engage the rule and authorities around us while we live in this, this heart of exile. Because what do we do with politics? How do we engage that? We avoid it. We speak against it, this kind of stuff. Because again, it's not, it's not the heart of God. Government, however, is a little bit more tricky. Because again, it should be neutral. And there's positive as aspects and negative aspects. 
So here's what I want to do today. Uh, just give a little bit of the backstory of the verses that Ava read, uh, and, and then draw out kind of four principles from Daniel's life and the life of his friends as they lived in literal exile that can kind of help us think of living in exile and engaging government well in this life of exile. So if you don't know the backstory of Israel, it was a mess before the, the writing of Daniel. Israel was an utter mess. The same sin and brokenness that we saw way back in Genesis 1 that sent Adam and Eve out of the garden into the first human exile, that same sin was just passed down generation to generation to generation to generation. That's the story of the Old Testament, and God tries to come in and redeem, and there's moments through kings and prophets that he calls people back, but then the sin takes over again, and on and on and on and on and on it goes again. Civil war, divided kingdom, ungodliness, about 700 years before Jesus, Assyria, which is another country, attacked the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, and they took 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel captive. Anyone know what Assyria's capital is, by the way? It's Nineveh. About 100 years after that happened, uh, there were these two other tribes, two remaining tribes, the tribe of Benjamin, great name, and Judah, um, and they were part of the kingdom called Judah. Um, and about 100 years after Assyria conquered uh, Israel, the other 10 tribes, Babylon came in and conquered Judah. And that's important. That backstory is important um, because that is the people of which Daniel existed who were taken from their homeland, temple destroyed, religion crushed. I mean, everything you would picture from the pillaging kind of images that we all have seen in school, this kind of stuff, and then took, took the rest of God's people captive into a land that wasn't their own. That's where we find the story of Daniel. And yet, God's, God's mission wasn't done just because his people were taken out of their homeland. Uh, in fact, in another prophet, the prophet Jeremiah, we'll come back and, and, and dive into this before the end of our series together, um, God specifically gives commands to those people who are taken by Babylonians by force into Babylon and leaving their homeland. And this is something that God tells his people through excuse me, through Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom who? I have sent. This is important. Who sends people into exile? We've seen this since Genesis 1. God claims responsibility for sending his people into different places. Whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, and multiply there, and do not decrease. Engage in the commerce, build relationships, bless the land, and this is a summary, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, because in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Does that strike anyone as odd? What would be your default desire to the people who stole you from your homeland, burned it down, crushed the temple, the centerpiece of your life and religion, would it be to seek their welfare? Would it be to bless them and build relationships with them? Would it be to pray? I would pray, but I would not pray for their welfare. I'd pray some other things for them, maybe. That command's important because this is where Daniel lives. This is where the story of Daniel's found. So we're just going to see today, how did Daniel and his friends engage the people in government who overthrew him and his family and his people? ripped them from their land and forced ungodly laws on them. And, and, and I just want us to keep this context in mind because no matter how bad it gets here, no matter how bad our government is, 
Babylon was worse. I guess there's like a tiny percent chance that it could be wrong, but, but very likely, no matter how bad you think it is here, Babylon's worse. And so if Daniel and his friends are going to respond in this well and godly way, maybe it gives hope for us who are in a, a, a less bad land. So diving in, how do we engage a foreign government? There's four things that Daniel and his friends do in exile. And, and as just an aside, it's, it's helpful to know, like, Daniel was there not alone. He had friends in exile with him. And so it, it, in the midst of an ungodly world, in the midst of some confusion, it's really helpful to have a few other folks to try to figure this out together with. It's part of why God's church is so, so very important. All right, so first, we glimpse, glimpsed this in a little bit of that recap. Uh, Daniel and his friends embraced life under a government that didn't hold their values and beliefs. Daniel and his friends embraced life under a government that did not hold to their values and beliefs. So in Daniel 1, the king summoned one of his servants, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, of Israeli or Jewish royal family and nobility, youths without blemish, good-looking, skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. And these, these foreign exiles, just again, remember who we're talking about, were to be educated for three years. And at the end of the time, they were to stand before the king. And among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them new names Daniel, he called Belteshazzar, my tongue's not working. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Where do we find Daniel and his friends at the start of the book of Daniel? Like, they're, they're not hiding away. They're not sneaking knives into the king's courts. But, but they are among the king's courts. Um, they're, they're, they're at the center of power. They're in the court of a, of a pagan and foreign king. Similar, another exile story, where do you find Esther? She also is at the center of power, near the center of power in the court of a pagan and foreign king. Here, here's the point. God's people are not called to hide from authorities or leaders who are unlike us whose values are different than us. Again, to the video, neither are we called to try to kill them or usurp them or, or take their throne in malicious, backbiting, quote-unquote, political kind of ways. God's people, rather, are called to, to live wisely and build relationships and to serve non-believing people, including leaders, and also to speak truth as God opens the doors to do so. If anyone read in the, the couple chapters of Daniel that we invited you to read this week, you may have noticed that after, after the, the Daniel diet, we'll come back to that in a minute, after the, the end of chapter one, when, when Daniel refused some of the, the richness and food from the king, um, who did he give credit to for preserving his life and making him strong? He openly spoke truth about God. Uh, in Daniel 2, Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and he did so super honestly and humbly and saying, it's not me who can interpret the dream, it's, it's God. Joseph did this also in Genesis with Pharaoh. Praise you, you interpreted my dream. No, 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 God interpreted your dream, praise God. Uh, later in Daniel 3 and Daniel 6, when, when God saved Daniel and then sh saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they gave credit to God and on and on and on and on. 
In Daniel 9, Daniel even references Jeremiah 29 and reflects Jeremiah's command to bless people amidst the exile they live in. And, And he's there, he says, to seek their welfare and to witness God. This is just an important starting point to go, what does this look like for us in a foreign culture? What does it look like for us in a government whose values may or may not reflect God's? What would it look like for us to embrace that this is the life we live and we're here, we're here for a purpose, we can accept that. As part of that, a second Note, Daniel and his friends accepted that there would be ungodly laws, and they accepted those laws as long as they weren't forced to contradict and disobey God. That make sense? This is, I think, very, very important for folks today in this confusing world of government and laws and and, uh, competing values and this kind of stuff. We already saw this, but I'm gonna, I'll put those back up there, but, but in Daniel 1 verse 4, they stood in the king's palace. They were, they were learning the literature and language of the Chaldeans. They were to be educated for three years. A couple of verses later, they were given new names. They were given Babylonian names. I love that you said earlier, like learning to speak the language is a vital piece of living in exile because if we sound so completely foreign as we talk about Jesus, as we talk about things we believe in, if there's no ability to relate, then we're shooting ourselves in, in the foot. So they were okay accepting some culture. They were okay even receiving some of the foreign culture. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile who with the king's food? Himself. So he was okay if other people did. We we can't imagine there were only these four guys of all the nation of Israel who were brought in to the king's courts. And so maybe some of them were okay with the new diet. Some of them were okay with the new ways of living. For Daniel, he was living by his convictions. He wasn't being forced to disobey God. He did not defile himself. So on one hand, again, what does it look like to to recognize that we live in a world and just accept that we live in a world of ungodly laws? What does it look like to embrace that there's going to be different ways of thinking and to be okay with it for other people as long as it doesn't force us to go against God. He didn't rage against the eunuch or the king. He didn't rally and try to get everyone to march against Nebuchadnezzar. He simply, if you read Daniel 1, he asked the eunuch, can I be exempt from this and we try this and see if God sustains me? What's that posture? Humility, so that you don't make me go against my God. Daniel lived in a world of many beliefs. You live in a world of many beliefs. And on one hand, I have a friend who does a lot of work with the State Department and and religious leaders around the world, and part of his work is to fight for religious freedoms for all religions, because any time another religion's right gets stripped away, guess what we're one step closer to? Your rights getting stripped away, our rights getting stripped away. And then on the other hand, if, if people around us or leaders don't believe in God, then, then like we have to ask the questions, why do we expect them to live as if they did believe in God? Like if they don't claim the same God, they don't claim the same faith we have, why do we, why do we ask them to uphold some sort of values that look like ours? That'd be asking them to be hypocritical. 
one writer that I read over the last couple of weeks, um, as he was talking about Daniel in the, in, in, in the midst of a pluralist society, said that Daniel, after being ripped from his homeland and thrown into the corridors of Babylonian life, even still, Daniel does not shut himself off. I think this is going to be up there. Maybe it's not going to be up there. I'll just read it. Uh, Daniel did not shut himself off and complain about the tyrant on the throne, but instead he uses his gift to, to serve the king and the people of his empire. And you're like, serve the king, is that God or is that Nebuchadnezzar? Both, actually. That's what Daniel did. Is that a good example? Is that hard for some of us to do? It's very hard. And, lest we swing the pendulum too far, there was a limit to accepting and embracing. Daniel and his friends stood up to the government, but they only, and hear me, only did so when the laws forced them to contradict or disobey God. You get the difference there? Like, let's see, at Daniel 1, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. And so again, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over them, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in the flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. It's funny to me that like the Daniel diet is like one of those popular things and it's mostly a health thing to lose weight. If you read just a couple of verses later, you're going to be fatter in the flesh than if you don't do that. It misses the whole point. The whole point is not a health thing. It's not even a fast thing. This is a, a, an obedience to our, the Lord our God. That's why Daniel did this. So fat or skinny, let's all obey God together and we'll be good to go. Whatever you eat or drink or be merry. A little bit later, you, O king, have made a decree. This is Daniel talking to Nebuchadnezzar. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast. I'm sorry, this is not uh, Daniel. This is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Will be uh, cast into a fiery furnace. So there are certain Jews you've appointed over the affairs of the province. These men pay no attention to you nor do they serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So Daniel says, I'm not going to eat that. Again, that's kind of a foreign thing for us, but in Old Covenant, uh, part of obe- obe- obedience to God was following food laws. It's a little bit of what's going on. The second verse is, Nebuchadnezzar demanded people bow down to him and declare him to be God and Lord. Later, in Daniel 6, the next king, Darius, followed suit and demanded that people pray and worship only him. Those commands, those laws directly contradicted the laws of the God of Israel. And so in each of those instances, Daniel and his friends had a choice. And and this is where we find ourselves occasionally, but not, not often, but occasionally. Would they worship and devote themselves to the one true God and follow God's laws and obey God's ways Or would they pledge allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar and Darius and worship and pray to those men? These are the few moments, like they're the famous stories in the Bible, but of the years they're exiled, there's a very few number of moments where they were forced to either reject God and participate in ungodly acts, or then and only then to oppose the leaders of the land. And again, do you get the difference? 
if people are allowed to choose an ungodly way, but Daniel and his friends were allowed to keep their way, again, if they weren't being forced into something ungodly, the answer was accept it, embrace it, bless others, serve God. Speak truth when allowed, but just accept that they lived in a pluralistic society. If in these very few moments, Daniel and his friends were forced to do something ungodly, some ungodly belief or practice, that was the one step too far. But even then, again, how did they stand up? If you know the story, they did so with a lot of respect and honor and asking questions. Can we pursue this diet? They did so alone. Both Daniel and his friends, they they prayed alone in their homes to their God. They didn't go to the steps of the castle and make a big deal about it. Respect, honor, quiet, alone questions. Following along? That leads to this final point, this final example. When Daniel and his friends did stand up, two things. One, they did so for God's name, not any people's name, including their own. And when they did stand up, too, they were literally willing to die for God. Kids. I have a ton of kids in here today. What happened to Daniel? What happened to his friends? It's one of the more famous stories in the Bible. Anyone know what happened to Daniel? Whoa, okay. Adults, what happened to Daniel? Come on, Freeman kids. Where are you at? I mean, I feel like y'all percentage-wise have answered a whole lot of questions already. So, <laughs> Daniel got thrown into a... Lion's Den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got thrown into a furnace, cranked up to seven times the heat, such that, I just love like the little weird details in the Bible, such that the guards who threw them in were burned alive. That's, that's impressive. It's not funny. You're a terrible person. That's really funny. Actually. No, I think God put it in there for, for a little humor. So, so here's the deal. We today have the benefit of looking back at both of those stories and knowing how it ended, right? Like we we have the benefit today of knowing that God bound the mouths of the lions, that Jesus or Christ figure met them in the furnace and unbound them and saved them from the fiery death that their guards, like we have that post-knowledge. They didn't have that. They had great faith. We trust that our God's going to save. But even if, did you catch that? Even if our God does not save, even if our God does not save, he says on a slide that we've already read, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you set up. I love Nebuchadnezzar's question. Who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Like, actually, let me tell you. But even if he did, they were willing to go to their death. And again, there's a piece of this that's like, yeah, we probably won't be asked to do that. And, and I get that on a literal level. But, but here's what I want to submit. They knew the risks that they were taking, uh, the, the risks that they were taking to oppose the laws that directly contradicted God and his ways and his will. 
like holiness church and worship and idolatry, like these are big deals. And they go against just outward facing values. And they go against just like societal kind of rules of life. More than any other human ruler, they were showing our devotion is to God. They didn't do this for themselves. They didn't do this so that some opposing party would win in the next election. Like they cared about the name of God, not the name of some nation, not the name of Israel even, not the name of some platform, not the name of some stance. Like it's, it's worth asking the question, when people oppose each other in politics and government today, do you know why they're opposing each other? Do they even know why they're opposing each other? Like when, pe- when you oppose someone who believes differently than you, are you doing so for the name of God? Or are you doing so for the name of some party or person or stance? Like the, there, just this week, there was a politician who voted no on a really good bill because, quote, I won't help the other party. It's opposition not for the name of God. Maybe it's for their own platform, but it's opposition for the sake of another false God. There's so much opposition today by people in power, by their followers. We're asked to join the opposition that glorify parties and people more than God or seek people's selves more than God. And it's so based on pride more than service. And you know what the point of government is? It's to serve the people God's put in front of you. Do you believe that? Does it make sense? Okay. Here's the point. Daniel and his friends are are a great example for us of rightly placed faith and hope. If you take nothing out of here other than that today, Daniel and his friends were a great example for us of rightly placed faith and hope. Their faith and hope is not in a government. It's not in themselves. It's not in some vague concept of values. Their faith and hope was definitely not in any human. Like again, they didn't submit to one ruler and obey that person's command because that ruler was good or they liked him and then reject and disobey the next ruler because they thought that ruler was bad. That's just not how it worked in monarchies and dictatorships and this kind of stuff. And there definitely was not any chance of a godly ruler in Babylon. It was literally a foreign nation. Literally any king that would take the throne would be a quote-unquote pagan or non-believer or not of God's people. The only option was an idol-worshiping, bow-to-me kind of demigod. That's the only option for people to rule in that nation. And guess what? Across the world today, if we raise our eyes and look at a lot of other situations, that's, that's the only option that a lot of Christians have, is to look at a national leader, people group leader, who, who would have no, no even inkling of leading in, quote-unquote, God's ways. This is the common experience of Christians living in a land not our own. There's not going to be one more Christian or less Christian leader. And and take it a step further, you don't want to overthrow or remove this ruler because the next one is going to be just as bad, plus you know he has the power to kill a ruler. So it's not going to get any better. So people's faith and hope is in government or values or people or stances in exile, like exile is going to feel hopeless. Anyone feel that? 
But we live in a world that pits politics versus politics and party versus party, and everyone's claiming to be more of a champion of your values. And some, some politicians are even backstabbing and manipulative enough to give a brief nod to the concept of God or to make themselves sound like they resonate with you. And so here's where this boils down in a very tangible way. There are some things that Democrats have traditionally valued that happen to align with some of God's commands in the Bible. And there are some things that don't. And there are some things that Republicans have traditionally valued that happen to align with some of God's commands in the Bible. And there are some things that don't. Do you believe that? In fact, in her great book, uh, Caitlin Schess, who co-hosts the Holy Post podcast, she had a great book, came out last year, called uh, The Ballot and the Bible. And she traces the, the recent U.S. evangelical trend from before Ronald Reagan, where some of you in the room remember this. How, how, what was the Christian party to vote for before Reagan? Way more democratic. And then the shift is toward republicanism over the last 40 plus years. Again, some of you remember that. For some of you in the room, you don't have a construct where the claims at least and kind of the mantra and this kind of stuff is that the quote other party is God's party. Over half a century, it's shifted. So we want to talk about shifting sand and putting your hope in the wrong thing and associating things with each other that shouldn't be. Like, there's no one Christian political party. Hard stop. Zooming out from that, might make you mad here, there are some things about capitalism that echo biblical examples. And there are some things about socialism that echo biblical examples. There are some things about democracy that relate to things we see in the Bible. And there's some things about monarchy that we see in the Bible. And we could go on and on and on. But hear me, there is no modern Western platform or value that holds these things because they're Christians or because they're the Christian party or because they're God's person. They do show because of the nation they're in, the platform, the constituency, and to get votes. And again, even if you think, well, yeah, but one party or one way values the Bible more, I would just simply ask and remind you, is Christianity based on values? And the answer is no. It's based on a relationship with Jesus. And so in all of life, if something looks real but is fake, what is it? If it looks Christian but turns out it's just values, if we take that into any other realm of life, then then at best... It's a facade or an illusion or a magic trick. At worst, it's dangerous and deceitful. Could the same also be true of politics or governance that looks Christian but doesn't actually follow or do so because of Jesus? Good? Stepping on toes enough today? So what does this mean for us in this spiritual exile? What does it mean for us always? What does it mean for us in this election year as politicians and governors try to convince you they're the best candidate in part by appealing to things that you believe and that sound Christian? I've got four quick answers. And if you've been here, you know I'm not usually like a checklist guy, but I think this is important. So I'm gonna be as as clear as possible on this. What does this mean for us today? First, we have to look past politics 
and look at actual governance. We've got to look past the peel of the orange and see what's actually going on in the meat. This is true of 2024 and presidential election. This is true of any year in any race. Do we actually see substance and stances or do we see hot air and bad character? Just to be clear, I don't envy I don't envy people in the government. I would never want that. Some of you may have aspirations to that, good for you. There's so many competing interests, so many attacks, so many differing beliefs that you have to represent and values and you have to decide what's best for yourself and others, but, but here's the deal, cut through all that confusion, integrity matters. Like whatever someone's stance is, whatever your stance is, whatever someone's party is, it is vital vital to lead well and to represent whatever constituency, local, state, global, whatever. It's vital to represent constituency well to other people and nations in the world. And here's what I would submit. The actions during like the political season, we're in like a political season right now more than a governance season. Is that fair? The actions during political seasons give a really good glimpse into how someone's going to govern. Let's look past politics at actual governance. Second, however you choose to vote, or step on more toes, if you choose to vote, it's a gift and a right. It's not a mandate, though. But however you choose to vote, don't put your hope in a mere human. Amen? Amen. Let's not put our hope in mere humans. Uh, we were talking about this with our team this week, and Matt made the comment. I'm going to misquote him probably a little bit, but... But he basically said, like, we should not feel 100% devotion to any person or party. Do you believe that? We should not feel 100% devotion to anything under the sun. It's okay to like someone. It's okay to share about that person. It's okay to vote for that person. But there's a danger if our full allegiance is to anyone but Jesus. And so the bottom line on this, we have to look for a better Savior. And guess what? We have a better Savior than whoever is in the Fort Worth courthouse or the White House or anything in between or any other people group or your boss at your office. Turns out we have a better Savior than anyone in any realm of government, governance. Kids, your parents are going to let you down. Jesus never will. <laughs> He's whipped around and goes, what? <laughs> Jesus will never let you down. Okay, good. Good. We live in an era where we get to look back at God's faithfulness even more than Daniel and his friends got to look back in God's faithfulness. They lived in an era where they looked back at God's faithfulness in the Exodus and they looked forward, getting hoping one day to go home to the literal geographical promised land. We look back and see God's faithfulness in a bigger way than Exodus. We, saw, we see Jesus as the fulfillment of everything that God had ever promised. And we get to look forward with hope to go home from exile, not just to a, a physical land in which we're going to die, but, but in an eternal and spiritual renewed heavens and new earth. Like, we have a greater hope in Christ. And so if that's true, then, then here's kind of this week's big questions. 
as we follow Daniel and his friends, what do you need to embrace and accept in this life in a pluralistic world? And what do you need to oppose for the name of God, not anyone else? And what would you be willing to die for as you walk through this land in a foreign government and foreign king? The government is not going to turn the United States of America into a Christian nation. Despite all the confusion out there, it never, never truly was. You'd be hard-pressed to find any point in history where we've been a unified nation. There will be ungodly allowances and laws. Hard stop, there just will. And so what does it look like to embrace and accept that truth? And even, even what would it look like to, to even celebrate other people or other groups that you disagree with? Our role, church, is to be God's faithful witness in this land. Our role is to be salt and light and to be the hands and feet of Jesus. It's, it's our job to display and declare Jesus. That's not the job of the government. Last week, Paul mentioned, uh, Paul Dean, uh, our friend who was here, he mentioned the term remnant. You know this term? I love this term. Throughout history and across the world, and in exile, God has always preserved some of his people. He's always preserved his people. His mission has not stopped. It will not stop. His church will not go dead. He will always preserve it. But when I think of that image of a remnant, I always, I always picture two cliffs. And there's warring factions going against each other from cliff to cliff and flaming arrows and this kind of stuff. And the, the preserved remnant is just the few people kind of walking in the ravine between the two cliffs perhaps in the valley of the shadow of death where God is with them. And I don't know about you, but I definitely feel that. There's political armies on the two sides of cliffs. There's even society and church, quote-unquote, and religion on the two cliffs. And, and, man, we don't belong in either of them. God's people don't belong fully in any single camp. And so whatever extreme we're talking about, the remnant... It's not a compromise between the two cliffs. It's not like take the best of this and the best of this, or it's not take a part of this or a part of this and everything's subpar. Rather, the remnant invites us into an utterly third way, an utterly different way that doesn't fit this and it doesn't fit that. In Christ, God pulled Jew and Gentile together and slave and free and man and woman and Democrat and Republican and socialist and Democrat and every, everything else you could possibly imagine. The remnant is going to involve people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And so we get to model a better way and a better king in this utterly divided world. You are part of that remnant. Do you believe that? You're part of that remnant. Finally, it's not going to be up there. What do we get to do in this crazy world? We get to look to Jesus as the full and final king. We get to look to Jesus as the full and final king. And let me just pause there. Is that really good news? We get to look to Jesus as the full and final king? Is that really hard to believe in some moments, though? That Jesus already is the full king and that he will be the final king? Here's the deal, church. You get to pledge allegiance primarily to Jesus. You get to live in this world 
in this exile, but you get to do so as full citizens of a better home and a better kingdom with full rights as a son and daughter and heir of God your Father. And, and so whatever political season we're in, whomever is what governor of whatever realm of life we're talking about, Jesus is king. doesn't matter as much in this passing and fading season. I heard a comedian once say, a comedian once say, and it was kind of like making fun of the Christian cliche in the hard season, like, oh, this too shall pass kind of thing. You've heard that? Like, it, it's, it's a proof text from the Bible. He's saying, hey, you're in a really hard season. This is what Christians do to each other. This too shall pass. He goes, you know what else is true? If you're in a really good season, this too shall pass. It's true in the ups and downs of life. It's true in the ups and downs of politics. It's true in the ups and downs of government. You believe that? But Jesus entered into this dividing world, divided world, with a broken government. At the time, if you look at when Jesus entered, there were all sorts of political turmoil going on because turns out that's not new in 2024 in the U.S. It's kind of a global historic reality. And in his life, he offered a better way to live. And in his death and resurrection, he invited God's people into their better home and kingdom. Because church, Jesus is the only right governor, the only right God, the only right king to place your faith and hope and allegiance in. And praise God, Isaiah's words, which we really only hear at Christmas, are true all year round and every year. Unto us a child is born. You heard this? Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And we stop there, but listen to this. Of the increase of his government, or his reign, and of the increase of his eternal peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Church, Jesus is your king. Do you believe that? Is that good news? He's also the only king who humbled himself to die for you. And that's what we remember as we take communion.